0: There's so much more to learn about pain and how to manage it and what's best. And it's been under-recognized and under-managed and under-resourced for so long that that's both very disappointing because we don't have enough really good options for women with pain or men with pain for that matter. But the other aspect of it is that it's so exciting because there's so many big improvements that can be made and new knowledge to be had. Whereas other areas of medicine have been researched a lot. So the likelihood that you'll come across exciting new things is much less. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie Forner, a physiotherapist
1: working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Susan Evans. She is a gynecological laparoscopic surgeon and pain medicine physician with particular interest in the management of pelvic pain, and she's the chair of the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia. She dedicates her time and research towards improving the quality of life to girls, women, and men with pelvic pain. She is the author of the book, Endometriosis and Pelvic Pain, and co-author of the policy document, The $6 Billion Woman and the $600 Million Girl, The Pelvic Pain Report. Although there were numerous topics that I would have loved to talk to Dr. Evans about because she is a wealth of knowledge, um, I had asked her to come onto the podcast to talk about a recent project that she has been working on that was called the Pelvic Pain Language Project. She has been working on it with Eleanor Schofield, who's a medical student at the University of Adelaide, as well as Professor Rolly Sussex, who's a professor of language at the University of Queen. Queensland. They wanted to study how women and girls talk about their pain, their personal experience, and what it means to them in their own words so that we as clinicians might be able to better understand our patients and use their words and, you know, start to recognize patterns of, you know, some of the terminology that they use might point us in certain directions of what kind of pathology or issues might be going on. So she's here to share with us some of the findings from this study that haven't been published yet, so it's nice and um, special that we get a sneak preview of this and she's also talking about some of the work that she's doing with Quendo and some of the other projects that the pelvic pain foundation of Australia are involved in so I hope you enjoy today's episode
0: after all those years of looking after women with pain the big question to me was what is it about the one in five girls that were generally pretty well and went through puberty and from very early on, had very severe period pain. What's different about the one in five? And that's really the big question that I came out of all those years really wanting to answer. So did you answer it? I'm working on it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it only takes, <laughs> holy moly, it takes a lot of
0: time. It does. I've been working on it since uh, the end of 2013. And yeah. I, I do have some ideas that I think are entirely quite likely to be at least part of the answer to that. And I'm working on those at the moment.
1: I cannot wait for that information. But again, I thought if it was okay today, I would love to talk a little bit about the foundation because it's relatively new and I don't know how many people know about it. And then when I was, I think when I first approached you, you had just started doing that research on the language of pain, which I have always found to be extremely important and I don't know if you you know how much progression has happened with that with that study but I would love to
0: like have you have you gotten any information I've got some things I can start talking oh perfect it's such an exciting study so this study is a study by uh, Professor Rowley Sussex and myself and another young researcher called Ellie Schofield. So the three of us have devised the Language of Pelvic Pain Study. And we've been wonderfully supported by Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia and by the other organisations in Australia that look after women's pelvic pain. So that's some of the Australian Coalition for Endometriosis Mm -hmm. organisations. And what a fabulous group they are. Because when you put something out on social media for those groups and invite people to write about their pain, that's how we got our wonderful response. Women are so generous writing about their pain because their major criteria is they want things to be better. They want to improve communications between themselves and health professionals, and they want things to be better for the next group of women growing up.
1: Was it anonymous
0: as well? anonymous yes so boy could they write and they Great, <laughs> so so they wrote lots and they wrote what they really thought and it was anonymous so there's no concern that we would know them or that they could be embarrassed or anything they just wrote what they really thought trying to explain to us what things felt like and what that pain meant to them wow So what happens when you put all that text into software is that it it because lots of things you can do about it. Now, one of them is you can just simply count the number of times that a word comes up and you work on the principle that the more people use a word, the more important it is to them. So our group were very different to normal literature and you can compare these the word frequency with the frequency in established literature, vast amounts of written prose by humans. So, often some of the commonest words are words like I, and we, and and, and the, and things like that. Um, In ours, the commonest word surprisingly, or not really, was pain. Okay, but when we get to the descriptors, how women describe their pain, this has lots we can learn. So, the top five words for this were sharp, stabbing, cramping, ache, and dull. Now, I remember talking to Rolly beforehand and I said, you know what I reckon the top one's going to be? It's going to be stabbing. And that is so important because stabbing is not a word that really fits with traditional medical literature. Yeah. And actually sharp, inched it out by a slight margin. But when you look at it closely, sharp and stabbing were often used together. I get a sharp stabbing pain. So big in women with difficult pelvic pain is the words sharp stabbing. I don't think that would be a surprise to many of your listeners. No. Cramping comes in at number three um, as overall group. And but it's a little different across the different types of pain. So cramping seems to be quite big in period pain. It was number two in period pain. It's good in bowel pain. It was number three, but it doesn't really fit with bladder pain where it was number 10. It doesn't fit at all with vulval pain where there was no recordings of cramping for vulval pain.
1: I was going to ask how you separated the word with the
0: condition. So you were able to do that with the software. Absolutely, uh-huh. And it came sixth in sexual pain. But still, all of those types of pain, period pain, bowel pain, bladder pain, vulval pain and sexual pain, all had sharp and stabbing in their top five. Mm. Now, this is really interesting for several reasons. Firstly, that the different organs might have some differences between them, like the uterus and the bowel might behave differently to vulva. But there's like an underlying thread across all of them which is very similar. So it does beg the question whether when we see someone with uh, chronic pelvic pain that we are really seeing a condition chronic pelvic pain with a few variations according to a few other pelvic type issues. And so we've tended in the past, most people tend to treat it as this is my uh, Um, my uterus pain or this is my bowel pain or this is my something pain or this is sometimes a word I don't like because I don't think it tells us much my endo pain yeah whereas really we're probably treating a condition called chronic pelvic pain that has a few personal slight differences and that's probably reflected in more and more that we know of pelvic pain as being a central sensitization condition in other words, the underlying problem is a sensitization of the nervous system and brain, and that the pelvic triggers on top, whether you're constipated, whether you've got a period, whether you've got a painful bladder syndrome, add, let's say, uh, a variation on it, but that the underlying condition is associated with central sensitization.
1: Was there any terminology surrounding that
0: that came out from a patient perspective? Yes. So one of the things that I find very interesting is that overall, looking at this group of women, uh, the number six word was burning. Now, burning is an interesting term. Burning is a classic central sensitization, neuropathic type symptom. And it doesn't fit very well with, let's say, uterus pain uh, or bowel pain, because you think burning is not really um, it doesn't fit with the mechanism of contraction of a hollow organ, which is how a lot of those things are seen mm. and burning varied a bit. So it was number six overall, but it was actually 15th in period pain. So further down, not a long way down because we had 142 pain descriptors, but it was 15th for period pain. It was 17th for bowel pain, second for bladder pain, third for vulval pain and fifth, for sexual pain. So I think the fact that burning was right up there fits with some aspects of central sensitization. It doesn't mean that people that don't have burning don't have it. But it was interesting to see it so high and a bit varied. Did you look at themes as well as words? Yes. So Roley, of course, being a professor of language, knows all these grammatical things that I'm really very bad at. And he looked at the similes. So this is where you say, my pain is like, Hmm. and the women wrote a lot about similes. They they were trying to explain to us what it is. It's a pain you can't see, but what does my pain feel like? And they used many of these. But interestingly, they used many more similes when trying to explain vulval pain than when trying to explain period pain. And I've thought about why that might be And it seems that period pain is maybe more consistent or it fits with things that people understand better, whereas women really struggle to describe what their vulval pain feels like. Um, Then, of course, there's metaphors, which is where you say not that something's like something, but something is something. So we're continuing to look at all these, but they're the sort of things that we've got so far. Our sample of women who completed our study was uh, heavily accented to those that had a dysmenorrhea or endometriosis base so a lot of them not all of them but a lot of them were people that were contacted through endometriosis organizations and uh, uh, but we are now doing our best to separate them out. So we have some who, let's say, have pain associated with uh, prolapse or mesh or bladder pain syndrome or something like that. So we are able to separate them out as well as to what their particular background is. Are you still are you still recruiting? Is that ongoing mm-hmm. recruitment? Okay. We figured 300,000 words of text was about all we could cope with. Uh, so we've stopped recruiting, but the analysis continues, and oh my goodness! Yeah, massive treasure trove. Once you put all that text into a computer, it's really, what questions do we want to ask the computer, and then it will tell you.
1: Today's episode has been brought to you by Brisbane physiotherapist and author, Sue Croft, who's written two books for the treatment of pelvic floor dysfunction, Pelvic Floor Recovery, Physiotherapy for Gynecological and Colorectal Repair Surgery, and Pelvic Floor Essentials. Not only are both books great for patients, but clinicians as well, and they contain extensive information covering topics such as anatomy and function of the bladder and bowel, correct activation of the pelvic floor muscles, conservative treatment of urinary incontinence, prolapse prevention and management. Management, as well as a chapter devoted to persistent pain management, which fits really well with our discussion today. Sue has also written over 300 blogs and continues to write, I don't know where she finds the time, on pelvic floor dysfunction and her books are available directly from www.pelvicfloorrecovery.com and I will put the links in the show notes so you guys can all go out and get her books. Okay, back to the episode. So did you ask, was it or was did you find anything yet, um, or did you ask about thoughts on the healthcare or medical professionals, their experience, or their like their thoughts or fears
0: some of that. that in there? But we didn't ask about that in particular. Yeah. We really focused on the language because our aim is to provide the tools. And the the words to improve communication between them.
1: I was going to say, so yeah, what will you do with all of this? Yeah.
0: Um, so we you know, anticipate doing lots of j- journal articles. Yeah. We've already done a couple of presentations of the early data, and we will certainly be feeding that back to uh, the, uh, making it available for people to read and look at and under see what we found, so that they can learn more themselves and. I think it's always important to realize that communication goes both ways. That anything we do has to work for both sides of the consulting desk. And women want to be better understood, and that's fantastic. And health practitioners want to understand them, make make everything easier. They want to do the right thing for the person in front of them. So that's where we're trying to assist the process.
1: So you want, like in a practical sense, with the information that you're getting, you want... Um, you know, the practitioners to understand the types of words and, names and languages that patients use to help them be able to treat them better, or
0: yes, because most health practitioners, no matter who they are, work on this pattern recognition yeah. so for example, when you 're at university, you learn that uh, a pain that maybe starts near your belly button and then moves to the right side towards the hip uh, is might be appendicitis mm. so you think, oh, this person might have appendicitis and you start asking more about that and you start thinking about and, you know, what tests do we need to do to decide if that person needs their appendix out or not? If you, as another example, if you have somebody who's, let's say, got a gnawing, they often use the word gnawing, which is unusual, gnawing pain in the middle of their tummy that goes through their back, you might think, oh, maybe that's pancreatitis because that's a classic description of it. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't really feel that we have a a handle in any way on women coming along talking about specific words and using certain descriptors or simile or metaphor and that providing the basis for a better understanding of what they may have and what to look for. So that's what we're trying to improve.
1: Which I just feel like I saw a nice massive tunnel open up. That this isn't just going to be good for people already in the field of obstetrics and gynecology and the pelvis, but GPs, all these other professionals that are dealing with people, and then you know the um, their patients use this language and these words and descriptors, and then they can go, oh yeah, well maybe you need to see a gynecologist.
0: Because no matter what area of work anyone works in, no matter who you are and what your employment, everybody wants to be able to please the person who's coming to see them. They want to know that they understand what the problem is, that they have the tools to offer that person that are effective, that they can provide a service that the person in front of them appreciates and values, and that they have a client that goes away happy. And it doesn't matter whether you're a plumber or you're a gynaecologist or you're a physiotherapist, you want to know that you have effective tools to understand and offer to your client, patient, whoever it is. And so uh, people working in pelvic pain, they're hampered in many ways. They're hampered because the language hasn't been well developed, they're hampered because we don't have tests that are very good for determining the exact treatments that might suit someone and we're also hampered because we don't have enough effective treatments so we don't have as many solutions as we'd like to have to help everybody so there are ways that we can improve communication which is the language of pelvic pain study and then we really do need new solutions for pain. And of course, getting back to our earlier conversations, this is an area that I'm working in and I'm now looking at developing new products for pelvic pain in women that will actually offer new solutions for them.
1: Can you go into any details about products or even just like what their products will be aimed at, like any kind of specific conditions well, the, the
0: or... products that I'm working on at the moment and we have a, um, a new company set up called Alira Biotech to develop them is actually looking at ways of reducing that transition in young women from bad period pain but otherwise completely well to pain on more days that gets more complicated that maybe involves their pelvic muscles, the bladder, the bowel. So that's sort of my work I do back in Adelaide is developing that, whereas the language of pelvic pain is my interest, just is a research interest in my uh, wish to improve the communication between women and their practitioners.
1: You are doing so many things because along with the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia, um, as part of that, there is the Pep Talks. Can oh, you yes. explain That's a little true. bit about
0: that? Oh, the Pep Talk is schools program is so exciting. If you ask women with who've had a difficult time with either period pain, pelvic pain, endometriosis, what they want for the future. They want solutions, but they also want better awareness and they want things to be better for the women that come after them. And they say, I so wish I'd known more when I was young. And so at Pelvic Pain Foundation, we have developed a schools program for girls and boys, we're happy with either, uh, in schools to help educate them at about the year 10, which is maybe the sort of 16-year-old level, about what's normal... What's not normal, and help them understand better the mechanisms of pain and point them in the right direction if they are if they do seem to have a significant problem that requires help. So we help them work out where in that spectrum of period pain they fit, and we give them uh, solutions that range from the simple to the more complex, depending on where they are on that that, uh, spectrum. And the PEPTOR program is wonderful and One of the great things that I'm very passionate about is that I want this group of young people to come through understanding the neuroscience as well as just periods and endometriosis so that they understand pain in the body and they'll be able to make good choices of their decisions and the way they will look after themselves, improve their life, live a healthy life to reduce overall pain, whether it ends up being period pain or whether it ends up being other pain. And in that way, we are relevant not just for the one in five girls that has bad period pain, but for any of those students who at some stage in their life will develop a pain condition. They'll be going through with better knowledge. So, how is it getting into the schools? Okay, so we've been financed by the National Action Plan for Endometriosis in Australia to provide our program to 80 schools in South Australia, so the state in Australia over this next 12 months and we're fully evaluating everything and we've developed the program we're already partway through delivery of the program so and we'd be hoping that we can demonstrate the effectiveness of it and the suitability for that group in an Australian setting to enlarge the program to other states we have a pilot in Queensland of ten schools later this year and we have interests from other states who are all very keen so South Australia is our first state, and, but we, do, we would hope that every student in Australia has access to the Pep Talk program uh, to improve their own well-being, their approach to healthy living and their understanding of pain.
1: If, if anyone's listening from Australia and they work in the school system and it's not piloted at their school, how is, like, do you have to wait until kind of the pilot and these studies are done before they're able to have access or how do they get it into their schools?
0: Yes. Uh, well, I think they're welcome to contact us. So we love to hear and we're already hearing from people from other states who say, how can we have this in our area? So um, it, in the end, it actually gets down to two things one we have to have enough money to do it because we employ educator and like that Um, and secondly we need the cooperation of the state health and education departments because they are the ones that contact the the schools and uh, allow us access to those one of the wonderful things has been the support that we've had through the federal department of health through the national action plan for endometriosis so this one year 80 school, 80 high school pilot in South Australia has been financed by a combination of the Federal Department of Health and the South Australian State Departments of Education and Health. So we'd love to hear from them because the more people we have in different states, the more ability we have to bring it to them and to impress upon their states that this is advantageous and important for the welfare of their young people. And... Sorry, go on. Uh, If there's a small group, like let's say a, a community, we've had some contact from some rural areas that want us to come to do a few schools in their area, we'd love to hear from them too. Because now that we've put all the effort into developing everything, it's really just a question of whether they have a local source of funding to allow us to bring our educators and program to their area. And the Pilot in Queensland has been financed by a grant from the Courier-Mail newspaper. So we're open to public or private funding and we would love to hear from them.
1: What about um, overseas? Like, I know that it's an Australian grant, but if people are interested
0: overseas, is there hopes that this will cross the waters? Oh, we're Mm -hmm. always open to that. (laughs) I think we're working on, we sort of... uh, you know, we start small Yeah, i <laughs> increasing it. But we've, right from the beginning, we have set it up and developed the resources and the program so that to have maximal application to a wide variety of groups. And so we've already done presentations to a class of boys. We've already done uh, presentations to a group of um, uh, children with impaired needs, so low intellectual capabilities. And we've started further discussions with some indigenous communities in in australia to ensure that our approach can be tailored to any particular needs of any group so we are setting ourselves up to be applicable to to any as many groups as possible because a girl is a girl she deserves support and help whoever she is wherever her location and supporting her really means involving her school, her the boys, her partners, her family, her community so that we can make major change in this area.
1: You wouldn't even think about involving the boys in something like this that's um yeah. sisters,
0: partners they'll have wives, girlfriends.
1: But that's it the fact that that you know you're teaching them at a younger age to understand these things so that when they're older you know maybe they'll have some more understanding and compassion and empathy and yeah, that's, that's amazing.
0: And I think that, that is, it's important that they know, but it's also important that the girls know how they can look after themselves so, yeah. and what they can do for themselves and how they can be active in managing their own health moving forward because we don't have wonderful solutions for pain in this area, but we do know the sort of things that can help and the lifestyle that they need to start working on from an early age to have as little pain as possible, and I'm sure you'd agree. Things like keeping active, eating well, uh, looking after themselves, approaching pain uh, in a positive way and uh, and yet taking full advantage of what treatments, medications, services and that are available as a two-way thing between her and health practitioners, a collaboration for the betterment of her own health.
1: Yeah, and so this is a big part of the... Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia, which um, is a relatively new-ish organisation. It's, what, about four years
0: old, I think? It is indeed. So I think the Pelvic Pain Foundation is new, but we've come an awfully long way. Oh, my goodness, yes. (laughs) Since I started. So there was... Pain has started certainly in Australia. I'm not sure about overseas, but pain started to get a lot more attention, and the needs and the expense associated to our community started having a lot more attention, uh, sort of soon after about 2010. And but when Professor Thierry Van Kuy in Sydney and I went to the summit for pain in Canberra, we realised that the needs of women and men with pelvic pain had been sort of overlooked, and That wasn't anyone's fault. It just wasn't out there on the radar. It wasn't getting attention. And yet so many people are uh, involved. It really is a silent epidemic of pain. So after thinking about this for a while, and we did continuing to research and work in this area, four of us at PPFA got together in the beginning of 2014 and said, all right, we need an advocacy group. Because you need a group that is able to advocate on this to government and to any groups without being seen as having a vested interest yeah. and to start improving things. So that was the beginning of 2014 where we decided something had to happen. 2015 we launched and we've been increasing our ability to provide as many, much information, as much support for uh, as we can for the schools program, for research and for advocacy ever since.
1: And so what are the hopes that kind of over the next few years, other than the research projects that you've got going now, is there any kind of big um, items that
0: the pelvic pain foundation is hoping to address or get out there? Okay. The schools is our big thing at the moment, and yes. that's taking a, a large amount of our attention. So we are focusing heavily on the schools as an early intervention, yeah. but we do do quite a few other things. We um, we'll be looking to update our website which has been popular but it you know it continually needs updating to provide more and more information for people where no matter where they are we're also very keen to improve the health service as it applies to those with pelvic pain because there are many systemic factors that discourage upskilling of health practitioners in this mm. area and they really need to be. So advocating on behalf of practitioners as to how we can improve the system to suit their needs to encourage more practitioners to want to work in this area. The reason for this is that the biggest problem in Australia for those with pelvic pain is actually a workforce issue. We need more practitioners from a range of backgrounds to choose to work in this area to choose to upskill so that they know more about it and have more to offer. And at the moment, there just aren't enough health practitioners prepared to work in this area. They all have other work they can do. It's not like they need pelvic pain work. Mm -hmm. And they feel uncomfortable that they don't have great solutions. They feel unsupported by a system That is financially very unrewarding to practitioners to do long consultations and comprehensive care. They are disadvantaged if they work in this area financially. They're disadvantaged in that they don't feel they have sufficient solutions currently to offer. And so we want to help both sides of of that consultation desk. So we offer our health practitioner training seminars for those that are particularly keen to up skill and i know you've been to one of our seminars which is one it was of-
1: excellent in adelaide you're still doing the little one day con- is it one yeah, or just two day
0: days? days we do one every yes. year and we welcome yeah. any health practitioner who's registered with APRA in australia yes i will be back it was Thank excellent you. so we are educating health practitioners we're supporting them in the workplace to make it easier for them to offer good care we're yeah. educating the public through our work- workforce and we're working heavily with the schools program
1: That is excellent. Again, that there is enough there, I think, (laughs) to be working with um, in depth for a very long time. But I really, um, as we as I was saying before, I love the passion that you have for this area and the work that you have been doing um, to help women and girls and again, and, and men who are suffering from pelvic pain. And I cannot wait for the results from all these different studies to come out as well. That's kind of the nerd side, but I do understand how long it can take. I, is, is Rolly, um, is he just doing this or does he have other jobs?
0: Oh, he's a retired professor at the University of Queensland and he doesn't stop. He just loves, you know, he, he's very passionate about pain. I was
1: say, how do you have time to do all this?
0: <laughs> uh, Roly likes to be useful for people. He's a, he's a presenter on the ABC. He's been talking to the public for a long time. He does about 50 talks a year. And he, he's very passionate about pain because he said, this is an area I can be useful in
1: yeah oh it's wonderful to have all of you on this project so hopefully we can have you back in the future to update us on some of that information um and if there um i know that you were also doing some talks at least around around brisbane for the general public on um i know you had done one at eve health not too long ago on i think it was period pain
0: Yes, I do yeah. a range of different talks. So sometimes I talk to gynecologists and sometimes I'm talking to trainees. Sometimes I'm talking to the public. And just lately, I've, you know, a couple of times been talking to schools. So I do a range. But um, uh, the ones with Quendo, the Queensland Endometriosis Association. That's who it
1: was with, yes. Yes.
0: And what we do sometimes on a day is we just have one hour where we'll focus on one particular aspect of pain and do it in depth. You know, how to manage period pain. Uh, how to understand how all the symptoms tie together those sorts of things how to talk about i did one on um, headaches in women with pelvic pain because they're so common so we pick one topic and talk about it and uh, they invite any member of the public who'd like to come along so the
1: best way to find any of those talks that you're doing through the pelvic pain foundation of australia as well as through quendo
0: Quendo are the ones that organize it. So I work one week a month in Brisbane, as you know, and when I'm up there, we sometimes do, if they ask me, I do talks for Quendo. So uh, Quendo are the ones that organize it.
1: Okay. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything um, else that you would like to tell everybody or point anyone to?
0: Well, firstly, I'd like to thank you for doing these podcasts and for getting that message about pain and things out there. We just need so much more conversation and discussion about it. So it's a really valuable opportunity for people. The second thing is that, you know, when you do help someone with pain and it doesn't need to be that hard, I don't think it is that hard to make improvements in people's lives. There's not much that's more satisfying than helping someone with their pain.